Good morning again. Welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. I'd like to invite you all to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. And if you're, you're with us uh, for the first time this morning, just to catch you up to speed, we are going through the book of Acts verse by verse. And the theme of the entire sermon series is Be My Witnesses. And uh, you'll see the title this week, The Lord Cannot Be Stopped. We've kind of divided Acts up into little mini-series, and right now we're in Jerusalem because that's where Luke has us, and we're going to see a great passage today, and what the Lord just screams to us, and what should cause us as his children, as his church, to rejoice is that he cannot be stopped. His mission cannot be stopped. And as I was meditating on uh, the theme of this week's sermon, I remembered one of my favorite stories in church history, and it's, it's very fitting because in October, October 31st, we will be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be thankful for what the Lord did through that time. Otherwise, we'd all be getting our rosaries out right now and doing some Hail Marys. So praise God for that. But the the story I want to share with you, you may have heard of Martin Luther. You'll see their pictures up on the screen. But I'm not sure if many people have heard of Frederick the Wise, Elector of Saxony. And so Luther, God saves him while he is teaching at the University of Wittenberg. And the University of Wittenberg was started by Frederick. That city was under his protection, and he was a very influential prince in Germany. You see, there were many men that God raised up prior to Martin Luther who saw the need for reform, for for getting the church away from the man-centered behemoth that had had become and getting it back to the New Testament. But those men were often killed and quieted right away. So in God's sovereignty, he put this man, Frederick, in a position to protect Martin Luther so he had a very long life in ministry, and the Reformation could flourish. And God can do this great work of grace that he did. So as I was thinking about the fact that the Lord cannot be stopped, this great commission, this gospel mission, which we have a church have been given, it's his mission. And he is fulfilling it, and he will finish it. So I encourage you, if you have never watched the movie Luther, came out around 2002, rent it, buy it, own it. It's an excellent movie that will give you a great glimpse into this wonderful story of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, and how a man like Frederick the Weiss was used sovereignly by God to guard and protect this incredible mission in history. And we're going to see a very similar thing today in our passage. Look at this great passage from Matthew 16, where we see Peter's great confession of Jesus' true identity. The Lord says to him, And I tell you, our Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Pay attention here. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As we as believers are encouraged and reminded about the fact that this is his mission and nothing has or ever will stop it, it gives us such great encouragement to do our part to join God in the rescuing of his children, the the reclaiming of worshipers in history. Now, as far as catching up to speed, let's do by way of review, we're, we're, we're in luck today because Luke has given us what we call a transitional passage. There's several of these in the book of Acts. And so if you look with me at verses 12 through 16, last week we we looked at uh, Ananias and Sapphira. We saw how the Lord God protected the church from internal division and internal opposition, which we said was the worst kind. External opposition strengthens and grows the church, but internal disunity and sin will destroy it. And so we saw how God protected them uh, last week. And so if you look at verses 12 through 16, it's a transitional passage that kind of ties up the Ananias and Sapphira passage and then sets the context for what we're going to be looking at today. And so you'll see with me, 
It says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the, the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's porch or portico. None of the rest dared join them. That's interesting because that directly connects back to last week. Imagine it. You're, you're an outsider. You're kind of investigating this thing called Christianity. And then two people within the church are killed suddenly by divine judgment because of sin. Whoa, you're going to think twice about a half-hearted commitment. So in a way, this protected the church from those who might come in half-heartedly or, or falsely and join them. But as you see, those same people that dared to join them also held them in high esteem. This movement was growing. It was well over 5,000, probably coming closer to even 10,000 believers from 120 just a few months before. God was doing a great work. And what we should understand from this is, you know, the, the church was doing well. The Ananias and Sapphira threat was averted. Now the church is back on target, back on mission and rolling once again. And if you look at verse 14, this leads us into today's passage. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So how this leads us into today's passage is just the fact that God is doing such a mighty work. The church is growing by numbers, each and every day, people are being healed. This has become an incredible movement within Jerusalem. Even those outside the church are just amazed and have a very positive attitude towards the church. And so we're going to see that feed into the reaction of the Pharisees, or mainly the Sadducees, as well as the Pharisees, as they become jealous. And you'll see on the screen, this is kind of the big idea of today's passage. This is the takeaway, which connects right to our title. Luke's account of the apostles' second arrest by the high priest demonstrates the powerlessness and futility of the church's opponents to stop the Lord or his redemptive mission in history. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time that we can gather together as a church. Thank you for the times we've had in homes this week and in ministry and in and just fellowship. And now we get this wonderful privilege to come together corporately and worship you together. And we praise you that we're getting to see the first church. We're getting to learn so much about Luke's description of how you were working in Jerusalem. So, Father, as we come to the text today, we pray, as always, that you would speak to us, that you would fill us, that you would open our eyes to this truth. And for those of us who are believers, let this encourage and strengthen us to be your witnesses and to not be afraid, to know that you are going to fulfill your mission, uh, really, with or without us. But let it be with us, O oh Lord. And for those in here today who do not know you, Father, open their eyes. Bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and save them even today, Lord, we ask. Again, we thank you for this time. Speak to us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first thing we're going to see uh, in the first section of chapter 5 here is that they can't stop him now. They can't stop him now. They can't stop him in the current situation that we're going to find the apostles in. And you'll see what I mean here. Read with me starting in verse 17 of chapter 5. But, so in contrast to this popularity that's happening, this work of God, the church is exploding. But the high priest rose up, probably Caiaphas, and all who were with him, his entourage, that is the party of the Sadducees. Just a reminder, two big parties, you guys know this, Pharisees, Sadducees. Sadducees ruled the Sanhedrin. They were the power in Israel, even though they were the minority party. Uh, they were what we would call maybe theological liberals. They did not believe in the miraculous, in the scriptures, or any of that stuff. All they cared about was being in power 
and not having Rome come and end their little fun game they had going on. So that's their motivation. So the popularity of the church is why we see the Sadducees rising up so much here in Acts. In, in the Gospels, you might remember it was the Pharisees that we see the most being an antagonist towards Christ. We haven't really seen the Pharisees oppose anything because right now what's happening is getting the Sadducees upset because they love being in control. They love being the popular ones. And oh no, they're filled with jealousy, as Luke tells us next. Filled with jealousy. So what do they do? They arrest the apostles for a second time. Now, back in chapter 4, we saw them arrest just Peter and John. This time, it's probably most of the 12. It might even be all of them. So a lot's riding on the line here. You get rid of those 12, this thing kind of ends before it starts, right? So just imagine a large number, maybe even all 12 of the apostles are arrested, and they put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They began to teach. So what's happening here is uh, the apostles have been rescued. What I say here about the fact that you can't stop the Lord now, we see that in the miraculous release of the apostles by the angel. So he has released them all. And so we see that even the prison doors cannot stop God from his mission. Without any effort, an angel walks in, opens all the doors, lets them out, says, go back to where you were arrested and keep preaching. So day, daybreak comes, morning, they get up in the temple and they start preaching the gospel as if it never happened. Now, when you see angel of the Lord, you might think back to the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. You may have been taught and you would have been taught correctly. That's a theophany. Many people think in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, that's the second person of the Trinity. So it would be Jesus before he became Jesus, the son of God. But here, that's not what's happening. This is not a theophany. This is just simply an angel of the Lord. Because the second of the person, the person of the Trinity is Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. But nonetheless, this is a divine miracle that God is doing. And so what happens now, and this is my favorite part. This is, this is huge drama here. This is, this is actually humorous and funny. I laugh when I read this because I put myself in the courtroom there. The Sanhedrin, the popular ones, the leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they don't know they've been let go. So imagine the scene. They're coming into this courtroom that's attached to the temple. They're, they're, they've got all their dress on. They look, they're just pomp and circumstance, coming in with all of their pride, filling, taking their seats. They all had special assigned seats. It says that the entire council, as well as the Senate of Israel, so everybody was called into this meeting. And they get their little places. They kind of adjust themselves in their seats, and then they're like, Call in the prisoners, right? One problem. Prisoners weren't in jail. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine how hilarious it must have been if we could be off to the side in that room and see the look on their faces when they find out that they're not in prison? And there they all are all dressed up. If there were cameras, the TV cameras would have been in there. Huge moment. How embarrassing for this group of people. And it reminded me of a story that happened in my life. You'll see a, a, an island up here on the... On the screen, this is actually Governor's Island in New York City. I had the opportunity to live there for one year when I was in the Coast Guard back in the early 90s. If you've seen the new Spider-Man movie, it's got a great shot in it uh, after the Staten Island Ferry incident. So if you look at the middle of this picture, you'll see a grassy area. And that's a golf course, or it was. I don't know what it is now, but it was a small golf course. And back in July of 1993, we had a changing of command, which is huge. Whenever a military base has a change of command, it's a big deal. So the outgoing commander and the in, incoming commander are all there. Huge ceremony. We were instructed that we had to wear our Class A uniforms. 
Okay, that's like white gloves, white shirt. It's the fanciest looking Coast Guard uniform. I know you've, you're familiar with the Marine Corps Class A. Well, Coast Guard Class A is not as cool, but it's still pretty fancy, just like the Sadducees, right? So, uh, <laughs> all right. Love it. Fan of the Coast Guard. So, uh, of course, you're a Marine, so, yeah. Now I know what your amen was for. Never mind. So, here we are. So, we find out about this, and quickly they announced to us that they needed a few volunteers to set up and put bleachers out. So me and my friends were raising our hands right away, and we got picked to be the volunteers. So we go, we set up, but we didn't have to wear our Class A's. We got to just wear our work uniforms, and later, we didn't know this was going to happen, but as the ceremony begins, we got to sit under a tent in the shade on a hot July day, kicking back in chairs with water bottles and watching this thing go on. There were all of our buddies all in their Class A, and it was hilarious. And that's what I thought of when I looked at this, because I'm just thinking, this is hilarious. They're all sitting there. And let's rejoin the text in uh, verse 24 there. It says, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words that they weren't in their cells, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. So they're j- just imagine, they're like, what in the world? And recently, archaeologists have discovered a portrait, uh, a hand-drawn sketch of the high priest's reaction at this very moment. And you'll see that up on the screen. That's the high priest, uh, and that's what... What in the world is going on, right? And then to make matters worse, we see in verse 25, just imagine all of this is happening, all this high tension, and a guy comes in the side door while this is going on and say, hey, everybody, the guys you arrested, they're back out here preaching. And it just got even crazier. I'm surprised that their heads didn't explode. There was so much stress, and they just didn't know what to do. And what is the Lord doing in this? He's saying, you can't stop me now. You can't stop my mission You can't stop what I am doing in history because I am God and I am sovereign. And we're reminded here with Matthew 28, the very last words in Matthew's gospel account, right at the end of the Great Commission, it's good for us to be reminded what Jesus said. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we are in the last age of human history right now, the time of the Gentiles. He is with us to the end, and his mission will never stop. And we need to be encouraged with that. But... We are pretty lousy at being his witness. I am being, being honest about myself. We struggle to share the gospel for many different reasons. And the whole point of this sermon series is that we need to be his witnesses. And if you're new with us this morning, we have uh, determined that the idea of witnesses is when we perfectly take the gospel. We, we understand the gospel of grace to where we can share it and communicate it. And then we merge that with our testimony, our Uh, experience of being saved by Jesus Christ. And we share that with people and we speak that truth into their lives. But it simply begins with us forming relationships, taking courage to share and get to know people. So I put a a collection of things. Really, these are reasons why I don't witness. So they might be true for you. And I think identifying the problem sometimes can help us get to the solution and change our habit and begin to witness and connect with other people so we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first one is disobedience. I shared with you a few weeks ago, the only way we can fail at evangelism and sharing the gospel is by not doing it. Because we can't mess it up. You may get out there and just blow it. And that's okay, because God is sovereign. He's going to save his children. He's going to finish his mission. So the only way we fail is when we don't open our mouths. We don't intentionally connect with people to where we can build relationships and share the gospel. That's, That's disobedience. It's the only way we can fail. Second, fear of man. That's a huge one for us, where we care so much what other people think. It causes us to be ashamed of our Savior, and we have to overcome that. We have to 
follow truth and not feelings at that point. Busyness and distractions, we all have that. Listen, all of us are busy. That's a fact. It's not going to change. We've got to find time. And if we look closely, there is time. And there are ways to merge our busyness with time with other people. Don't eat lunch alone. Uh, you know, get connected to your neighbors. Invite them over for dinner. You see the early church that great things happen when they ate together. It's a natural time to build relationships and share with people. Also, counterfeit missions. The church of the 20th century and 21st century is really good here in America at counterfeit mission, doing things that we say is evangelism, and it's really not. Everything we do as a church has to, has to fit and correspond with our mission, our vision, which is really obedience in the Great Commission, you know, being part of what God's doing. Also, entangling sin. We looked at that with Hebrews 12. God's called us to run this race, but often we have sin in our life that's going unchecked, and it, it wraps our feet up. And, and God, Satan's got us where he wants us, off uh, on the bench. On the sidelines, not in the game. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the bench. I want to be in the game. So we need to learn to, to uh, confront our sins, to confess our sins, to come get other guys or other women to share with, to hold us accountable. Also, church program, uh, falling into the attractional model. At the Church of Blue Ridge, we see ourselves as a missional church. It's not like, that doesn't mean we're, we're not going to strive for excellence in everything we do, but we're missional. It's not about attractional. We're not going to compromise and turn the church into something else. Finally, go- gospel ignorance. It's important that we get a basic understanding of the truth of the gospel. Because when we had that, we get confidence. We get confidence to come and share with people this great truth. So there's a few reasons that I, sh- I have struggled with and still do. I want to share that with you. And maybe it's true for you. And together we can encourage each other. Together we can hold each other accountable and be his witnesses. So we saw that uh, they couldn't stop the Lord now in this certain circumstance. We're going to be reminded that they couldn't stop him then as we look back to the passion of Jesus Christ. And we're going to rejoin the text here in a moment. But back to the Coast Guard, uh, one of the things that that we would do, we had these 41-foot small boats. And uh, I was never the boat driver guy. That's called a coxswain. I was just a crewman. So when we were tied up somewhere, the coxswain always wanted me to go to the bow. And after we untied the line, to kind of push off, push off the dock, let the boat kind of get out a little bit so then he could give it some power and, and move us out. And so, again, as I'm, I'm thinking about what God's doing here, we have to be reminded in redemptive history, God is pushing off, in a sense, the nation of Israel. Doesn't mean he's not done with them, but he's giving these, these Jewish leaders, he's giving the people of Jerusalem time to repent and believe and continue as the people of God. But if they don't, he, in a sense, is pushing them off. And I have a a slide that we looked at a few weeks ago that illustrates this. And so you see the continuity. Before Christ, Israel, that's where the people of God were. After Christ, it continues in the church. But Israel, Judaism, takes a sharp right and really from that point until today becomes a reaction to Christianity, a completely different thing. We have more in common with Old Testament uh, Judaism than the, the Jewish people today, even the Orthodox Jewish people. And so the Lord is pushing off in a sense. He's giving this opportunity of grace and of hope even to those who put his son on the cross. So let's rejoin the text, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So uh, just to to back up a little bit, the uh, high priest instructs the temple captain to go out and to get the apostles and bring them back in. But this time it says they they were really nice to him. They didn't make him go by force. They kind of asked him. And, hey, if that was me, I would do the same thing because this is a little freaky. This dude just got out of jail somehow. I don't know how. I'm just going to go up and say, hey, will you come with us? They're also scared of the people, of the crowd, because the people love the apostles at this point, really popular. So they get them to come back in. They're all now standing before the Sanhedrin, 
and all their pomp and circumstance. And verse 28, the high priest addresses them, and he says, hey, back in chapter 4, now that's for our sake, not theirs, but last time we arrested you, we charged you not to teach in this name. The high priest can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. Reminded me of Harry Potter. Nobody wanted to say Voldemort's name. Same thing. He can't say his name. He says, we told you not to preach in this man's name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, back when, uh, back when this whole thing was happening and, and they killed Jesus, they weren't too concerned about what his disciples thought because it was 120 people, not much of a threat. But now you have five to 10,000 people who have joined the church. This is a big enterprise. There's some fear here of the numbers, but also of what Rome might do if this thing gets out of control. So they're just like, why? You're bringing this man's blood upon us. Look at Peter's response in verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That is huge. That's a verse you want to circle. Last week, we talked about the fear of the Lord, a healthy understanding of the fear of the Lord being, being a good thing for the church. It helps to keep us unified where we care more what he thinks and less what man thinks. Here we see the fear of the Lord being played out by the apostles. We must listen to God rather than men. And now Peter goes back into the, the apostolic gospel. We call this the kerygma. And he shares again this gospel about, about what God did despite man's attempts to stop him. Again, you couldn't stop him then. Look at verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. What a great condensed passage of the gospel. Now, when you look at the, uh, the, the verb raise, where it says the God of our fathers raised Jesus, you automatically think resurrection. But actually, that word is referring to all that God did to bring the Messiah onto the scene of history. So think incarnation all the way to John, John's baptism. All right, so God raised him up. God brought him into the scene of history. God was so gracious that he sent his son to become one of us and to, to do all that he did. And then in contrast, the leaders of Israel killed him. They hung him on a tree. That's, of course, a curse. We see that in Deuteronomy. Anyone who's hung on a tree is a curse. And that's a great reminder for us today. Jesus became a curse for us. Awesome. That's the good news. He hung. He was a curse for us so that we could live, so that we could be with God forever. And then, in contrast to their action, God exalted him at the right hand. That includes the resurrection as well as the ascension. God raised him and he's seated at the right hand. And look at these titles. Leader. Savior. Leader's a royal title. So think prince. Think royal prince. He's our prince and our savior. And then we see these these three things that are so important. These three things that we receive when God rescues us, when he leads us to repent and believe. And you'll see it right there. The first one is repentance. God made him leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, as well as number two, the forgiveness of sins. Then he says, we are witnesses to these things. And so it is, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, what we want to recognize here is something very important. There's this really frustrating tension sometimes in Christianity between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And we see that in this passage as it pertains to repentance. We see that repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is graciously given to mankind so he can believe and be saved. But at the same time, we see at the end of this verse, that the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. So repentance is also obedience. 
And that's why we can go out as witnesses, completely confident in God's sovereignty in his evangelistic mission, but also going to folks and pleading with them to repent and believe. We can do both. It's, it's, it's hard, but we have to maintain a belief in both. The sovereignty of God to give repentance and our responsibility to go and call men and women to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So we see that here. I wanted to point that out as an example so you can wrestle with it and, uh, and meditate on it. Now, uh, behind me, you'll see this, uh, another slide. I've shared this with you before. These are the four R's of conversion. These are just things I've came, I came up with. I alliterated them for my sake. And it helps me understand what God does when he saves someone. Now, I actually added a fifth R intentionally. Um, and this is regeneration. It refers to the fact that God worked graciously prior to conversion. Some people call it illumination. And that's, that's okay. I like the word regeneration. But it's referring to God's his act of grace before conversion, where he turns the lights on. He begins to soften the heart. He opens the eyes so that one can read his revelation. One can, by his grace, recognize their sin and God's holiness. And then one, again, by grace, can repent and believe, can turn from their sin to Jesus Christ in faith. And then, of course, receive some of the things that we see here. Forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, eternal life. And so, again, a great passage that informs us of the gospel. And so as we turn to application, I wanted to remind you of these just, again, for confidence building. So as you understand how God saves, how he rescues, you'll be more encouraged to take the gospel and the testimony by which he saved you and share with people uh, who God God has put in your life and and share with them. But understand how God works, too, so we know how to pray. Uh, Really encouragement here is that, you know, salvation, there's so much hope even for those who were as hard as the Pharisees and the Sadducees in this past. That's what's amazing here. If you read between the lines, these guys put Jesus on the tree. They killed Jesus. Blood indeed was on their hands, but blood's also on our hands. But what's amazing is even here, Peter's preaching the gospel to them in hope that they would repent, that they would believe. And I'm sure some did. I'm sure some Pharisees and Sadducees were believers. So even for them at this moment, Grace was available. And as we go out, we don't know how God's working. We don't know who he has chosen to save. We need to assume everybody has been chosen and share the gospel with all. But there's hope even for the hardest heart, even for the, the, the most evil person we can think of. There is hope of repentance and faith. Because as we'll see in a few weeks, that's who Saul was before he was converted. He was literally a terrorist to the church. God saved such. As he, So let us be encouraged with that. Let us also be, cur- be encouraged here. We see in these two verses here, 33 and 34, I'm sorry, 32 and 32, we see all three members of the Trinity working in salvation. We see a reference to the Father, we see a reference to the Son, and we see a reference to the Holy Spirit. So I love pointing out triune passages where you see in just a verse or two all three members of the triune Godhead represented. So I wanted to point out that to you and encourage you that if you are a Christian today, you and I have just as much Holy Spirit as the apostles did back then. They didn't get an extra dose. Now, granted, they had authority. They had a, a unique office in history. But we have just as much Holy Spirit today as they had. So we have to make a decision. Are we going to sit on that? Or are we going to take advantage of the power that is within us and go and be his witness? That's what God is calling us to do even now, even today. So let's, let's wrap this up. We've seen that how, how they couldn't stop God in the present. They couldn't stop him in the past. And this is the encouragement really for us. 
They won't ever stop him. Won't stop him ever. No one, nothing can stop him. I was reminded of one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, and this is in the book of Daniel. You might remember, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel's brought in to interpret it, and he, he dreams of this giant statue. You have the golden head. You have the silver arms and chest. You have the bronze middle section and thighs. You have the uh, iron and clay legs and feet. And, and all scholars agree on it was some order of the empires of that time, the greatest empires in history. And so many people believe the gold, the head, was Babylon. The, uh, the silver, this section, uh, was the Medo-Persian Empire. The middle section was the Greek. And then the, uh, the feet, the clay, the iron, was the Roman Empire. So you have four of the greatest empires in history. And I love this passage, what, uh, what Daniel tells us. Look with me on the screen. Daniel's telling the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so so that not a trace of them could be found. And here, check this out. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That stone is Jesus Christ. And that that growth is his kingdom on earth. He'll never stop. His mission will be fulfilled. Look at this. This passage is incredible. You have these mighty empires of God represented in precious metals and a little rock in the hand of God turned it into God. And that little rock becomes the kingdom of Christ. And it's going to fill the whole earth. It is now, even today, as God is continuing to fill his mission. So let's finish out here. Look at verse 33. You can imagine at this point, these men weren't too happy. In fact, they were, they were very upset, as we see in verse 33. But we're going to see a voice of wisdom come from maybe an unexpected source to calm these angry Sadducees down. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The word kill appears 24 times in the New Testament. 19 of them are in the book of Acts. What does that tell you? They wanted to kill them. And here's that voice of wisdom. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Gamaliel uh, is so famous that he's actually mentioned in rabbinical literature that, that's beyond this time period. He was a legend of his day. He was the son or grandson of Hillel, who had the most uh, renowned rabbinical school. The Pharisees were his disciples. Gamaliel, of course, we find out in chapter 22, was Paul's teacher. So this is a very influential man. Uh, it reminded me of uh, the story of the Southern Baptist denomination's uh, rescue from those who led it. Uh, again, real quick story. I don't want to take too much time with this, but it's important that we know church history. Uh, in the mid-20th century, almost every, in fact, every Protestant denomination, uh, regardless of where the people were, were, the leaders were very liberal theologically, meaning they had gotten away from belief in the scriptures, very universalist, like everyone's going to be saved. They didn't believe the gospel. And most denominations had to split in order to survive. But Southern Baptists, a group of pastors got together in the late 60s through the 70s and formed a plan, and God blessed that plan. And through a lot of battle and work through the 80s, took back control of the Southern Baptist Convention. So in those early days, these pastors would get together, as well as some lay people, and they would fight and they would argue. And when they would get off track, a great preacher named Adrian Rogers, who had an incredible voice, he he was quiet most of the time. 
But then he would start to speak. And when he spoke, everybody got quiet. Just like here. And he would say, gentlemen, is that a hill on which we really want to die? And it would help to bring them back to the mission at hand and refocus them. And so Gamaliel is kind of doing that here. And we see in verse 35, look what he says to them. And he said to them, men of Israel, so the apostles have been taken out, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. And then he goes into a couple stories where men have already tried an uprising of sorts. Uh, he talks about Theodos. He talks about a guy named Judas. And he, he, he reminds them, hey, remember when these guys rose up and tried to say that they were someone, something special and a few hundred people went after them, but eventually they became nothing. So essentially what Gamaliel is saying, he said, hey, if you give these guys enough rope, they're going to hang themselves, all right? So just back off. Let's see what happens. Of course, in this case, they've got five to 10,000 people, so it's a little bit different. And then if we pick up the text again in verse 38, he concludes this. He says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. Here it is. I love this part. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And here we sit almost 2,000 years later today, believers in Christ continuing his mission. So is it of man or is it of God? Can't, you won't stop him ever. He will complete his mission. He will fulfill all that he has set out to do. And you'll see here uh, a great passage from 1 Timothy just reminding us who this God of ours is. And, and Timothy, or Paul at this point, is referring to the first person of the Trinity, the Father. He says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. That is the God who we serve. You can't stop him ever. And you also see this slide up on the screen. This is a pattern that I have told you you're going to see time and time again in the book of Acts. Helps us to understand what God's doing. You'll see the gospel proclaimed. Then you'll see it opposed. Then you'll see the apostles persevere through the opposition, and then you see gospel fruit. My friends, here's another example of it today. Look with me as we finish up and wind this down. Verse 40 tells us that they called them back in. They beat them. So this is the first time they've gotten beaten. They've suffered physical affliction as a result of following Christ. Uh, That would have been the 40 lashes minus one, so 39 lashes, each of them, to the back. So he called them in. They beat them, and then they charged them again. Hey, don't speak in this name anymore. And they're like, whatever uh that's not going to happen and then they let them go but look at verse 41 what it tells us about the disciples the apostles they leave it says then they left the presence and they were rejoicing the 39 lashes were intended to cause shame and it didn't cause shame it it produced rejoicing they were so thankful they got the opportunity to suffer like jesus christ suffered they could identify with christ like never before And they wanted to continue on this mission in the worst way. So everything these guys tried to do to stop this, all it did was fuel it to continue on. And I told you that last week. External opposition will grow us. Yeah, it's scary. No one likes it. But it will grow the church, keep it pure, and keep it on mission. Verse 42, look at how this mission continued. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. So you have the the home gathering in homes together. They were being taught by the apostles and they would gather corporately in the temple uh, and they would proclaim. That's the word evangelize, by the way, preaching there. That's the Greek word for evangelism. So they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'll leave you with this last 
uh, little story, and then we'll wrap up. Back again in church history, the Roman Empire was getting ready to fall. And you've probably heard about this because a lot of people will compare the West today with the Roman Empire, how they, they follow similar tracks. And so you're, that's about the early 400s, and you have two legendary theologians alive at the same time. You have St. Augustine, who many of you are probably familiar with. You also have St. Jerome, who wrote the Latin Vulgate. So that's the Catholic Bible that they still use today. Not a bad translation. It's got a few problems, but a pretty good translation. But they're both legends, right? And they have two different reactions to the writing on the wall that the Roman Empire is about to go away. Jerome has a famous quote where he says, how can the church survive without Rome? We're doomed. Sky is falling. So in his old age, he goes to Jerusalem and lives the rest of his days in a cave, hiding from this that's about to come. So we have that option before us. And then there's St. Augustine. He's the same set of circumstances. And he says, huh, I'm going to write a book. He writes his most famous book, The City of God. I haven't read it yet. I want to. It's like 700 and something pages long. But in this great work, he, he, does, he kind of writes in a metaphor of God's kingdom and man's kingdom crashing into each other and how God's kingdom takes it over. And he has a quote that comes from that work where he says this, and this is important, what I want to leave you with. When the church stops going to the world, God brings the world to the church. And that was Augustine's point. Hey, this is going to be a great opportunity for mission. As the barbarians and all these people sack Rome, we're going to have an incredible opportunity to share the gospel and be on mission. So that sits before us now. We know the writings on the wall. As much as we don't want to think about it, this Western society is crumbling quick. What an opportunity we're going to have, and we do have now, even here in Blue Ridge, for mission. I was five minutes down the road yesterday at uh, Isaac's football team party, and a parent who is former Muslim was here in Greenville in Blue Ridge was sharing with me how God saved him four years ago from Islam. Guys from Kuwait. It was incredible. We have a choice. Are we going to go hide in the cave with Jerome, or are we going to see this as an opportunity as the world is rocking? Yeah, the things we love may crumble a little bit, but isn't that what we're here to do? To preach Christ, he is risen. I'm going to invite the band back up as we uh, transition to our invitation time. We may do the invitation a little bit different than how you're used to. First and foremost, this is an invitation for the children of God to worship. To worship God with these next couple songs and praise him for what he's revealed to us. Even commit yourself during it as you sing these songs. Commit your hearts to obeying the Lord. So there's an invitation for the church. There's also an invitation for anyone who's not part of the church. Uh, you may have questions about the church. More importantly, you may not be sure of your eternal salvation, whether you know Christ. We would love to share with you. Uh, myself, I'll be standing right back there near the coffee, so there's a little incentive. Come and, and grab me. It could be during the songs. It could be after the songs. Even an email later this week. I know Robert would love to talk to you as well. We would love to share with you about Jesus Christ or even a little more about the church. So let's pray. And we'll sing. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for these heroes in the New Testament and how you teach us so much about what happened to them. And you've taught us a great lesson today, Lord. You cannot be stopped. Praise you, Lord God. You cannot be stopped. You are sovereign and full control of your mission to save your children, to reclaim worshipers in the name of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, let us as a church, as individuals and also as a corporate body, join you and throw our hand in and throw our hat in and be obedient to what you're calling us to do to be your witnesses in our lives and here in Blue Ridge. Thank you for this time, Father. Open the eyes of those who need you. Lead them to faith in Christ. It's in his name that I pray.